Hey, this is Tim from Kalamunda Church of Christ, and today I hope that this podcast blesses you. If you are wanting to know anything more about our beautiful church, why don't you hop online and head to our website at kalamunda.church. Okay, it's God plan. The historical philosophy of Daniel, Esther, Nehemiah, and Ezra as expressed through the book of the Bible, is that history is determined and guided by the hand of God. God has a plan. God has a big picture plan. But he has a small plan too for your life, for my life, for each of our lives. So, I'd like to look at the book this morning, or the chapter two this morning, from four aspects. The importance of waiting, the importance of courage, the importance of planning, and the importance of unity and teamwork, all of which are undergirded by prayer and all of which form a part of God's plan. So last week, as I say, Brad talked about the burden on your life. Having a burden doesn't mean you simply leap into action. It generally requires waiting on God. The very fact of waiting means you trust God for the outcome and for his outworking. And we read in chapter 1 of Nehemiah that that burden came on Nehemiah in the month of Kisli. They have some unusual names for months back then. But if we look at chapter 2 here, uh, if we can have the next slide, that's it, in the month of Nisan, which is four months later, four months, you might have thought that Nehemiah would have raced into the king immediately and said, I've got this word from God we need to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. But no, he waited. Now, none of us like waiting. And biblically, he was no orphan. Abraham, when he was 75, was told God by God that he would have a son and would father many nations, many peoples. He was a 100 when that was fulfilled. Did he like waiting? No, in fact, he ended up that he went with Haggai and had Ishmael. And it wasn't until he was a hundred that Sarah had a son. Waiting tests your trust in God. If you are waiting on God for your burden, wait in patience and trust. Joseph spent 13 years in prison waiting for the fulfillment of God's promise. Moses was 80 when he was sent back by God in the burning bush to Egypt, and it was three years later before he led the people out. David was anointed as king by Samuel, and it was 20 years later after running away from Saul, who was trying to kill him, that he became king. 
if God has given you a burden and nothing seems to be happening, wait. Waiting is good for us. It teaches us patience. Like Nehemiah, waiting teaches us to pray and to fast. And fasting opens the spiritual center of your soul to God the creator and sustainer of all things. Waiting also teaches us to wait for an opportunity, not a miracle. Nehemiah wasn't looking for a miracle, he was looking for an opportunity. And it gives us time to plan and not be impetuous. And we'll come back to this really important point. Grace reminded me when I was looking at this aspect of waiting that of course it involves listening. Nearly 50 years ago, and I can't believe I'm saying that, I, I was teaching out of Ezekiel and Ezekiel 16, and it says in there, this was the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah. They neglected the needs of the poor and the hungry. And I was deeply convicted at that point that God wanted me to do something. So along with six other people, we got together and formed an organization called Christian Refuge Centers. And we met together each week to pray about what we would do and how it would unpack. And we were really thinking, because there were several women on the committee, that we would do women's refuge centers. <clears throat> this went on for a year. Nothing happened. And then, for the first and only time in my life, I actually heard God speak. And essentially, he was saying, it's the homeless, not women's refuge centers. So went back to the group, and six weeks later, we opened the doors of the first of what became 13 houses, waiting, waiting. We waited and trusted God for the vision for a year. Secondly, Nehemiah needed courage to address the king. What is courage? Courage is activity in the face of fear. Activity in the face of pain, danger, uncertainty. But what was the big deal for Nehemiah? After all, it was a simple request, and he was the cupbearer. He saw the king every day. The problem was that Artaxerxes was a ruthless, bad-tempered ruler and more autocratic than Putin. <laughs> so, in general, the execution of a servant was no big deal and not uncommon. Had the power to execute without trial and due process, and the power was often used to maintain order. And so we pick up the story again in chapter 2, verse 1. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought for him, I took the wine and I gave it to the king. And I hadn't been sad in his presence before, so the king said to me, why does your face 
look so sad when you're not ill. This can't be anything other than sadness of heart. And Nehemiah said, I was very much afraid. But I said to the king, may the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Well, nothing much to see there, perhaps, or is there. Remember, Nehemiah was living the good life. He was eating the same food as the king, and he was drinking the same wine as the king, and he had to because he was testing for poison. But the problem was that if you were a cupbearer to the king, you were expected to be sunny and cheerful and happy. And if you weren't, then something was wrong. Perhaps the wine had been poisoned and you knew that you were going to get ill or die along with the king. The penalty for sadness in the king's presence was severe punishment or even execution. But even worse was that Nehemiah was asking for something that had been forbidden. Seven years previously, King Artaxerxes had issued a decree banning the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem, a decree that was issued at the prompting of the Samaritans and Ammonites around Jerusalem, who said the Jews are building walls to avoid paying taxes and to rebel against you. So there was a specific ban on the walls, and he was asking this autocratic ruler to go back on his word and allow the walls to be rebuilt. So he was putting his own career and his life on the line. If the king had been displeased, then it was off with his neck, off with his head. But remember, we saw that Queen Esther, the Jewess, was sitting beside the king. And God's plan of influence was there. It, and so Nehemiah took the risk, took the risk and chose not to live for himself, but for the people trusting in God. And people who serve God, you, me, anybody else, with passion and a focus are no longer living for themselves, but for other people. Our ultimate example is, of course, Christ himself. And Nehemiah was a change maker. He was about changing the status quo. <clears throat> In whatever realm you are called, you are called to be a change maker. And change makers need courage because they have to make difficult decisions. Decisions that affect the lives of others. There are decisions that can be unpopular and may even lead to criticism. <clears throat> and you can remember, perhaps, when we were handling the mandates that the governments gave us for COVID, how difficult the decisions were and how it was uncomfortable for many of us in the midst of all that. And recently we introduced the concept of females in eldership and we're blessed to have Claire as an elder. But that was a difficult decision 
So courage involves making difficult decisions. It means taking risks in order to achieve their goal. We need to try new things. You're probably not particularly aware, but at the beginning of this year, we were facing a massive deficit in our budget, a big, big hole. And we had to try and balance the books. And it was at such a point and seemed so bleak that Brad was saying, well, I can go part-time. But we realized through the grace of God that we had a key ministry area that should be our mission field, which was youth. And it got lost in the day-to-day -day of the church. But we reframed both the budget and our activities so that youth became the mission field and we had a faith promise offering. And I rejoice in God's grace and the fact that we now run a comfortable surplus every month. But it was a risk because we weren't prepared to make any cuts. We stepped out in confidence and faith that we keep on keeping on. And it also means standing up for what is right. It means if you're a change maker, you stand up for what is right, for, for justice, even when it's unpopular. And that does involve sometimes challenging the status quo. Courage means taking risks. The third point is planning and preparation and the need for planning. And there are two phrases which Tim will be familiar with. Let go, let God, or do your best and God will do the rest. If we plan, the question is, are we really relying on God? If we plan, are we really trusting God? Let go, let God suggest we should surrender our worries and concerns to God and trust that he will take care of everything. And we can then experience peace and joy because it's, hey, out of our hands. But God's word tells us actually it's biblical to plan. Proverbs 16.3 says, commit to the Lord whatever you do and he will establish your plans. Proverbs 16.9 in their hearts, humans plan their course, but the Lord establishes their steps. In Proverbs 21, the plans of the diligent lead to profit as surely as haste leads to poverty. God always works through a plan. The Lord our God is a planning God. The counsel of the Lord stands forever, the plans of his heart to all generations, the psalmist sings. From the beginning of time when the worlds were created, God had a plan for our salvation and he carried it out through history. And we see how he even carried out in a smaller scale in captivity. So in terms of the phrases, let go, let God do your best, God will do the rest, both phrases are true. When we're facing difficult challenges, it is important that we let go of our worries 
and give them to God and trust God. Let go, let God. But when we're working towards a goal, it is important to do our best and trust God to bless our efforts. And it was just as well Nehemiah planned because he was then able to clearly lay out what it was that he wanted from the king when the king asked him in Nehemiah 2, verse 6 and 7. Then the king, with the queen sitting beside him, asked me, how long will your journey take and when will you get back? And it pleased the king to send me. So I set him a time, first thing in the plan. I also said to him, if it pleases the king, may I have letters to the governor of Trans-Euphrates so that they will provide me safe conduct until I arrive in Judah. And may I have a letter to Asaph, keeper of the royal park, so he will give me the timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel by the temple and for the city wall and for the residence I will occupy. And because the gracious hand of my God was on me, the king granted my requests, the different parts of the plan. So I went to the governors of Trans-Euphrates and gave them the king's letter. The king had also sent army officers and cavalry with me. So it wasn't just a small little undertaking. God has a plan for humanity. God has a plan for your life. And that plan may be big or small. There was a man who converted one person to Christ, and that person was, oh, I forget his name, uh, Graham, anyone help? Uh, Billy Graham, good on you. Uh, Billy Graham, that the only part of God's plan for that man's life, apparently, was to convert that one man, and that one man converted tens of thousands. God has a plan. And so we come to the fourth part, partnership with God, leadership by example, servant leadership. Nehemiah's burden for the people started with the reports of their vulnerability to, to attack. This wasn't a new problem. The walls of Jerusalem were destroyed by the Babylonians way back in 586 BC, a long time before. And the Babylonians were led by King Nebuchadnezzar who had set siege to the city for three years before it crumbled and he was so ticked off by the three-year siege that he demolished the walls along with the temple when he captured it. But it was a major blow for the Jewish people because their defenses were gone and the symbol of Jerusalem was destroyed. But Nehemiah was a change maker and it started with a burden and a burden for the people. But surprisingly, when he first arrived, he kept his mission a secret from the leaders of the city. And he went out at night to inspect the walls with a couple of companions. Can we just have a look at the slide? So there were a whole series of gates around Jerusalem. And he went out through the valley gate and he worked his way around and then had to come back because he couldn't get past 
the old gate, back to the valley gate, and he had to come back and in. But he went round the walls with his companions. I went to Jerusalem, and after staying there three days, I set out during the night with a few others. I hadn't told anyone what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. And there were no mounts with me except the one I was riding on. So his mates had to walk along behind him. And he needed the secrecy because he needed time to formulate his plan before he presented it to the elders. And I dare say he needed the secrecy because there were people that would sit out to kill him if they knew what was going on. So once he'd done that, we come to Nehemiah 2, verse 17 and 18, and he meets with the elders, and I said to them, you see the trouble we're in. Jerusalem lies in ruins, and its gates have been burnt with fire. Come, let us rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, and we will no longer be in disgrace. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God on me and what the king had said to me. Now, Nehemiah was stating the bleeding obvious. But the problem was that these people had come to accept the broken down walls and the impossibility of repairing them. It was a hundred year old problem. And when someone had tried it some years before, the Samaritans had reported them to the king and he'd issued the decree banning the rebuilding of the walls. So they'd just come to accept it. That was their reality. What's interesting with this verse is Nehemiah's language. It was really inclusive. You see the trouble we are in. Well, Nehemiah wasn't in trouble. He lived in Persia, in the palace. But he came alongside them. He could have said, quite reasonably, the trouble you are in. And he then went on to say, come, let us rebuild the walls. Nehemiah partnered with them, and this is important. He came alongside, he didn't try and stand over them and say, I've got a plan, fall in behind me, guys. Nehemiah's approach was what God had for them and not about making himself great. And they replied, let us start rebuilding. And so they began the good work. Nehemiah had no ego. He wasn't big noting, he didn't want to make a name for himself. Sometimes we let ego get in the way of what God has for us in our plans, or his plans for us. And that can make people hesitate about joining you in whatever it is. Now, I can remember back in the 90s, and I was looking after an agency called Perth City Mission that I'd started to take over Christian refuge centers. And we had food supplies that we solicited from all over the place to feed the hungry. So did Wesley Care, so did Anglicare, so did the Salvation Army, and so did every other agency in town. And it seemed illogical to me that we were each beating others over the head to get to the particular bakery or the particular vegetable supplier. And so 
I thought we'd found a food bank. And I needed money for the feasibility study. And Lottery's Commission wouldn't give it to me until I got agreement from every other agency that they would surrender all their food sources to this new one called Food Bank. It took a year to get an agreement to surrender that little part of each kingdom. <coughs> but the rest became history, and Food Bank now supplies some 2,000 plus agencies. <coughs> the lesson is that we cannot afford ego in God's service. Hide yourself. The glory isn't yours. It's God's. So Nehemiah came alongside. He wasn't directive. But he faced immediate opposition from those around. Opposition that would, in ensuing chapters, turn into violence. And so when Sanballat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite official, and Geshem the Arab, widespread alliance here, Ammonites, Arabs, Samaritans, they mocked and ridiculed. What is this you're doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Do we need to report this? And I answered them by saying, the God of heaven will give us success. We, his servants, will start rebuilding. But as for you, you have no share in Jerusalem or any claim or historic right to it. What I'd like you to think about for a minute is when this opposition arose. It wasn't at the heart stage when he got the burden. It wasn't at the vision stage when he thought about rebuilding Jerusalem. It wasn't at the prayer stage where he was praying for God to show him the way and open the pathway to the king's heart. It wasn't even at the planning stage. It was when he actually started moving. We will face opposition from the enemy when we start moving. And we have started moving. So let's not be surprised if we face opposition at different times as we move forward as a congregation and as a community of faith. Some people fear ever stepping out for the Lord because we all know, and many of us have experienced, that opposition that will come. And you think, well, life would be better or easier if I just stayed and lived my mediocre Christian life. I'm still a Christian. But it's a sad deception to believe that you can have a better life through a half-hearted commitment to Christ Jesus. Challenging times will come to everyone, but when we boldly reach out and follow Christ, we are far more equipped to deal with those challenging times. As Paul writes in Romans 8, when God is with us, who can be against us? And finally, Nehemiah 3 tells us about Nehemiah's leadership style. And the effectiveness of that style is seen in the fact that he rebuilt those walls in 52 days. Well, he didn't, but everybody around him did. He was a servant leader, and a servant leader is 
a powerful leader, and his style has a number of benefits. He was a humble man. He put the needs of others before himself. He put the needs of others before his position in Persia to serve in Jerusalem. He was empowering. He involved everybody on those walls. If you read chapter 3, there is this impressive list of people that he pulled together from around the city to each build a section of the walls. And he was selfless. He rolled up his sleeves and worked alongside of them. We all have different styles of leadership by nature. My nature certainly used to be fairly controlling and authoritarian, but you don't really get very far with that. Um, so you can move in a collaborative style, a servant leadership style, which will bring people with you, and you'll get the work done far more efficiently and quickly. So in Nehemiah 3, 1 to 3, Nehemiah assigned the first section of the wall to Elishabad, the high priest. And in doing so, he showed his respect for the engagement and authority of the priests. In 4, he assigned the next section of the wall to the sons of Hassanah. So the young people got involved. He assigned the next section of the wall to the men of Tekoa. Now, there's a, a funny thing about the men of Tekoa, and that is that whereas every other group that came on, the nobles or leaders of that particular family group, sub-tribe, whatever, rolled up their sleeves and got involved, the nobles in Tekoa wouldn't take direction from a supervisor and refused to be involved, eager eager. Lots of respect. Really strange. But he worked alongside them and he praised the people for their hard work. And if you read that chapter, you'll see that each chunk of the war was done by a family or a group of particular people. I'd invite the worship team to come up. Key takeaways, I think, are that God is with his people all the time, that he has a plan. He has a plan for your life, for my life, that you need to wait on God's timing and trust God. And trusting God is actually going to help you fulfill that plan far more effectively than trying to do it in your own strength. It's also a reminder that God can accomplish great things through his people. We cannot be scared of what God is asking us to do. If he's asking you to do it, you can accomplish it in his strength. And it's a reminder that we need to keep our walls in good repair. I'd like you to just look around at each other for a second one of the truths of the Bible and one of the truths of your experience is that we are all seven out of ten. We're all, we're not perfect. Grace will tell me that she's eight out of ten, but we're, 
where we're all seven out of ten. How we recognize the shortcomings and deficits in each other and make allowance for that is how we forge a unified body of people here. We cannot afford to have division and backbiting, not that I think there is any. But opposition will come. Opposition will come. As we sing the last song, I'd like to invite anybody who has not yet given their lives to the living God to take the opportunity to come forward for prayer. I would also like to invite anybody who has a burden that God has placed on their heart and they're struggling with it to come forward if they feel the need for prayer. And I'd also like to invite anybody who has any need for prayer to take this opportunity to come and receive prayer. So I thank you for your time and attention this morning and may God bless his word to our lives. Thank you, team. <laughs>